Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, want to hear a joke? Sure. What do you call a drummer with half a brain? I don't know what. Gifted. Get it? Half a brain? So that makes him smarter, even though he's got just half a brain. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Wait, wait, here's another. How many drummers does it take to change a light bulb? Tell me. 20. One to hold the bulb and 19 to drink until the room spins. Get it? Uh, I got another. What's the difference between a drummer and a vacuum cleaner? You have to plug one in before it sucks. Hey, where are you going? I'm going to band practice. Really? What are you going to do with those big toothpicks you've got in your hand? Uh-oh. Come here, funny boy! Hey, ow! Not sideways! This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome to the show. I'm Alan Cross, and I have a confession. I play the drums. Seriously, I, I still have a kid in the basement that I bought with the money I made teaching lessons at a shop on Main Street in Winnipeg called Drums Unlimited. And okay, I worked in a drum shop. I will admit that some of our kind aren't so bright. I mean, how often do you ever hear a musician's joke involving, uh, I don't know, bass players? But overall, you know, I think drummers, we get a bad rap. And I'm out to prove this. The title of this show is Drummers Who Made a Difference. Throughout the history of rock and roll, all the glory has gone to the singers and the guitar players. But believe it or not, drummers have made some very significant contributions to music. And without these people, what we listen to today might not have been possible. Now, let me set this straight. This doesn't mean that these are the best drummers or the most talented drummers we've seen. Many of them might not know a paradiddle from a flam. Like some of these people we're about to discuss are, are, are closet drummers. So, yes, I am talking about drummers who have altered the course of rock music. Hey, come on. No, I'm trying to be serious here. Really? All right. Hang on. Here's, here's some proof. Who has the nickname of the godfather of punk? Ziggy Pop, right? Well, let me ask you this. What was Iggy's preferred instrument? The drums. Back in the middle 60s, Iggy got to start doing two things. First of all, he was the drummer for a Detroit band called the Iguanas, and they played gigs around Michigan and even recorded a few songs. But Iggy was really quite good. When a lot of the Motown acts at the time, you know, the Shangri-Las and the Temptations and the Four Tops and others, played live gigs... They toured just with a couple of musicians, usually a guitar player and maybe a piano player. The rest of the band, including the bass player and the drummer, would be hired locally. They'd rehearse a bit before the show and then hit the stage. And Iggy was one of the guys these Motown acts would hire to play drums for them. He was so good that he could pick up just about any song within seconds. Of course, Iggy didn't stay behind the kit forever. He started writing songs, moved on to the Stooges, got involved with David Bowie, took a lot of LSD, and pretty much laid the foundations for modern punk rock. And think about that. Where would we be today without that drummer named Iggy Pop? Still one of the coolest rock beats ever recorded, Iggy Pop and Lust for Life, the title track of his 1977 album. Now, just as an aside, that drum bit was actually inspired by the theme song of a German news program. When he and David Bowie were trying to straighten out their lives in Berlin, they watched a lot of TV, and this one TV show had a theme that went, da, 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 and, and Bowie picked up on that, gave Iggy the idea for the beat, and uh, presto, you got some history. 
All right, so there's no disputing that Iggy Pop, a drummer, had a huge influence on the development of new rock. But that was a fluke, right? He's the only one of his kind. No, far from it. This brings us to the case of Jeff Hyman. Jeff was a big fan of the Beatles. When he was growing up, the neighborhood supermarket gave out stamps with every purchase. Collect the stamps, and you could trade them in for some kind of gift. So Jeff got his mom to trade her stamps for a snare drum and a set of hi-hats so he could play along with his Beatles records. When he was 13, his grandmother gave him a full drum set, which he eventually expanded so it was as big as the one played by Keith Moon of The Who. See, Keith was Jeff's drumming hero. Jeff was in and out of a couple of bands and was good enough to audition for a couple of professional outfits. Finally, he formed a band called Sniper, and as well as playing the drums, he ended up being the singer. But then in early 1974, he hooked up with two new guys, a guitarist named John Cummings and a bass player named Douglas Colvin. They started jamming with Jeff on drums and played their first gig together on March the 30th, 1974. But they soon ran into problems, because Jeff was this really heavy hitter. His drums were loud, man. He also liked to play very, 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 very fast. And as it turned out, he was a better singer than either John or Douglas. So it came to pass that Jeff moved down front and became the singer, and a friend named Tommy was forced to keep time using a $100 drum set. This arrangement worked out pretty good, especially after John became Johnny and Douglas became Dee Dee and Jeff adopted the name Joey and they all adopted the same last name, Ramon. So yeah, Joey Ramon, one of the most influential and important figures in the history of punk rock, was actually a drummer. Judy is a Punk by the Ramones, a song written by Joey Ramone when he was still playing drums for the group in early 1974. And there's no argument here that this particular drummer made a difference, right? Here's another example of a drummer changing the world. And I'll tell you right now that it's Larry Mullen of U2. Larry picked up the drums at an early age, age nine, in fact. His first teacher was a guy named Joe Bonney, who at the time was Ireland's best-known drummer. And he taught Larry well. It wasn't too long before his mom spent a whole 17 pounds on a second-hand drum set. Before Larry even made it to high school, he was playing in a band at the local post office, which actually traveled around the country. He also played in the big St. Patrick's Day Parade in Dublin, which is a huge honor. He took a lot of lessons, but he grew very bored with the formality of it all. The rudiment exercises, sight-reading charts, playing along to somebody else's music. So one day when he was 15, Larry pinned a note to the bulletin board at Mount Temple High School in Dublin. The note said, Money wasted on a drum kit. Were there others out there who had wasted money on guitars? The first person Larry approached was fellow student Adam Clayton. A couple of brothers, Dave and Dick Evans, showed some interest, and so did this arrogant kid named Paul Hewson. So that autumn, which is 1976, they had their first rehearsal in the kitchen of Larry's house. It was the very first time the members of U2 played in the same room together. And we all kind of know how that turned out, don't we?
U2, featuring, of course, drummer Larry Mullen, the guy responsible for forming the band in the first place. Oh, and by the way, Larry's dad, Larry Mullen Sr., was very supportive of his son's drumming ambitions. But his advice was, uh, well, he almost had his son convinced to join the Irish Army for seven years so he could play in the band and learn to play all the percussion instruments. So can you imagine where you might be today had Larry followed his father's advice and joined the Irish Army? Think about that. What would rock be like without you two? Drummers are responsible for some major, major developments in the history of rock and roll. I mean, it, it's, it's true. It's an undeniable fact. Take the contributions of Butch Vig, a guy who helped shape the whole grunge revolution of the early 1990s. Not necessarily as a performer, but as a producer. Butch is originally from Verwaqua, Wisconsin. He took piano lessons as a kid, but took up drums when he was a teenager. After two years in pre-med at the University of Wisconsin, he took four semesters of electronic music theory. But then he dropped out to form a group called Spooner. There were three albums with Spooner, and one with a group called Firetown. It was around this time that Butch became interested in producing music, so he rented a small space in Madison, Wisconsin, where he began working with local indie groups, including a group called Killdozer, who made the trip up from Chicago. It was Butch's work with a 1989 Killdozer record, called For Ladies Only, that he began to attract attention across the U.S. It was through that record, that Killdozer record, that Kurt Cobain decided to relocate Nirvana to Butch's studios in Wisconsin to work on demos for what would become their major label debut. That worked out so well that Kurt asked Butch to produce the whole album. That album was Nevermind, and we don't need to go into that story again. But it doesn't stop with Nirvana. Butch also produced or remixed records for a who's who of 90s music, Sonic Youth, Depeche Mode, Soul Asylum, Smashing Pumpkins, U2, L7. Plus, he found time to form his own multi-platinum band called Garbage. Let's hear some of them. This is Garbage from their 1995 debut with Butch Vig on drums. I'm only happy when it Garbage with Only Happy When It Rains with grunge super producer Butch Vig on drums. Now, this is as good a time as any to segue into a quick discussion of Dave Grohl. In the early 1990s, all anyone knew of him was that he was the guy with the big grin who kept time for all of Kurt Cobain's songs. When Kurt died, all bets were on Nirvana bassist Chris Novoselic to be the guy with a successful solo career. No one paid much attention to the drummer because he was the drummer. And drummers never amount to anything, right? But had we taken the time to really examine Dave Grohl's background, our preconceptions may have been a little more informed. Dave grew up in Washington, D.C., where he learned to play drums and guitar by following along to records by Kiss and Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and Black Flag and the Stooges and Motorhead. Guitar lessons came first. He learned the drums by arranging pillows on his bed and banging them with some borrowed sticks. So how did he end up playing drums full-time? because when he was in a band called Freak Baby, the drummer was so bad that Dave just kind of took over. Dave's big break came in about 1987, when an established local band called Scream let it be known that they were looking for a drummer. So 18-year-old Dave applied and got the job. Scream broke up in September 1990, right in the middle of a tour. The bass player bolted because of some girlfriend problems, stranding the band and Dave in Los Angeles. So desperate for a gig, Dave called his friend Buzz Osborne, See, Buzz was in this Seattle band called The Melvins, and Dave was hoping that maybe he knew of any openings for a drummer. 
So Buzz gave Dave the bass player's phone number, and Dave made the call and was invited to come on up. And he packed all his drums into a big cardboard box, grabbed his only bag of clothes, and headed up the coast to join this weird little band called, of course, Nirvana. And again, we're kind of acquainted with that story. Nirvana, complete with a Dave Grohl drum solo. After Kurt's death, Dave stepped up from behind the kid as the leader, singer, and guitarist of the Foo Fighters. And, well, they've done okay, huh? Still, most people were really, really surprised at how good a musician and how good a songwriter and how good a singer Dave actually was. There was one tiny, tiny hint of his talent when Dave was still with Nirvana. If you go through the entire Nirvana discography, you will find exactly one original song that wasn't written or sung by Kurt. It's buried at the end of the heart-shaped box single. Dave wrote the song back in 1990. He actually recorded it then and released the song on an indie cassette under the name Late. When Nirvana made the In Utero album, another version was recorded. Thought you might like to hear it. One song Dave Grohl wrote and sang for Nirvana. It's called Marigold. He's there, case I want it all. He's scared, cause I Dave Grohl's lone contribution to the Nirvana songwriting catalog, Marigold, a bonus track from the Heart Shaped Box CD single. Now that we've seen Dave in action through multiple Foo Fighter CDs, it makes you wonder what Nirvana might have become had Kurt lived and had he decided to tap into the talent that he had behind the drum kit. Like I've been saying, the topic of this program is drummers who made a difference, drummers who have, in one way or another, helped change the course of rock history. And if that's our criteria, there is no way that we can leave out Lars Ulrich of Metallica. But we're not going to talk about Lars's musical contributions. The biggest difference he's made is his vigorous opposition to music downloading. Lars was the guy who made it a mission to shut down the original Napster. For better or worse, he was the guy, the public face, who led the charge against anyone who downloaded music for free. The primary source of income is from the sale of records. Every time a Napster enthusiast downloads a song, it takes money from the pockets of all these members of the creative community. Back in the spring of 2000, they discovered unreleased Metallica files on Napster. So in April of 2000, they sued Napster. And to make their point, a grand photo op. A list of some 350,000 Napster users trading Metallica files were dropped off in front of the TV cameras. That list took up 60,000 pages. 1.4 million copyright violations of 95 Metallica songs. The legal assault on Napster had begun. We have no issues with the internet. We look at the internet to the future as a great way to get uh, Metallica music directly to our fans. But this is a clear 
uh, illegal thing and um, that people should know that. If they want to steal Metallica's music instead of hiding behind their computers in their bedrooms and dorm rooms and just go down to Tower Records and grab them off the shelves instead and not be about it. Our team of lawyers and researchers have your names, and we're going to hunt you down like the table scrap pilfering grab asses you are. So to conclude, rock on, Metallica fans. We'll see you on tour this summer. And you Napster users, we'll see you in jail getting Napster banned. Metallica, featuring the music downloader's worst nightmare, Lars Ulrich. Back with two more of New Rock's most notable drummers in seconds. The first person has almost zero technique, in a traditional sense anyway, but the contributions of this person were, uh, well, you'll see. The second, the second drummer we're going to talk about in this next segment, it's going to freak you out, especially, well, hold on. Welcome back to this program called Drummers Who Made a Difference. And once again, we're not necessarily talking about skill. We start that argument, we'll be here all night fighting about who's got better technique. That's not the point of this show. We're looking at drummers who have in some way contributed to the overall development of new rock. For example, this next person had horrible, horrible technique. But it's not why we remember Mo Tucker. Mo, which was short for Marine, by the way, was the drummer for the Velvet Underground, a group considered by many to be the first true alternative band. Mo was the last person to join the group. She was drafted after the Velvet's first drummer quit and moved to Nepal, where he would eventually die of malnutrition, but that's another story. Mo's style was uh, unorthodox. Instead of sitting down behind a conventional kit, she stood up and played everything with felt mallets instead of sticks. So how'd she work the foot pedal for the bass drum? Well, she didn't. She laid the bass drum on its side and played it with her mallets, kind of like if you had a marching bass drum and you laid it on its side like that. And Mo hardly used cymbals either. Mo says her style and setup was inspired by a Nigerian drum virtuoso. So, all right, whatever. And there's more. When Mo joined the band in 1965, there were no women drummers. See, back then, playing the drums was considered to be a man's job, so Mo broke down some serious gender barriers. But oddly enough, no one really took any notice at the time, probably because she wasn't setting up her drums properly anyway. It's only in retrospect that Mo got her due as a musical pioneer. So here are the Velvets, and while you're listening to this, check out the drum parts. Note the lack of snare or cymbals, or hi-hats, or anything remotely rock and roll. Yet somehow it works. Cause when the blood begins to flow, when it shoots up the dropper's neck, when I'm closing in on death, The Velvet Underground and Heroin. Not only were they the first real alternative band, but they may have been the first rock band of any kind to have a female drummer in Maureen Tucker. Our final drummer who made a difference will definitely give a few guitar players pause. Jim was born in England back in 1923, and for a while he worked in the family's fish and chip shop. Unable to enlist in the war for health reasons, he studied to be an engineer, and he turned to the drums, and Jim became very, very good very, very quickly. 
Over the years, his students included Mitch Mitchell, the guy who would later go on to back up Jimi Hendrix. There was Mickey Waller, who played in bands with Jeff Beck and Rod Stewart and Jimmy Page. Things were going so well that in 1960, Jim opened his own drum shop in London. Not only did he continue to perform and teach lessons, but he began to sell gear, including some giant speaker cabinets that he made at home. As an engineer, Jim was always interested in sound and amplification. His store sold amps from American companies such as Fender, but some of his customers started to complain that they were inadequate when it came to playing this newish thing called rock and roll. So in 1963, Jim and his staff came up with the loudest, cleanest, most rugged amplifier they could make. This amp and the speaker cabinets with 12-inch and 19-inch speakers became a big hit with the new generation of British musicians. And Jim's stuff is still standard gear for guitar players who want to go big or go home. Did I mention that Jim's last name is Marshall? Yeah, the famous Marshall amplifier, the famous Marshall stack, the dream gear for millions of guitar players around the world, was conceived, invented, manufactured, and marketed by a drummer. So let's review. Here's a list of new rock drummers who made a difference to the history of rock and roll. Iggy Pop, drummer by training, lunatic and godfather of punk by reputation. Joey Ramone, ex-drummer who stepped forward to lead one of the most influential rock bands of all time. Larry Mullen, the driving force behind the formation of U2, another one of rock's all-time most important bands. Butch Vig, drummer-turned-super-producer, and the guy who helped Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins be the bands they were. Oh, and speaking of Nirvana, there's Dave Grohl. And he's done okay, huh? Lars Ulrich, love him or hate him, he's the guy that mobilized musicians against Napster and internet downloading. Maureen Tucker of the Velvet Underground, making the drums safe for women, starting in 1965. And finally, Jim Marshall, the inventor of the Marshall Amplifier and Marshall Stack, with its amplifiers and speaker cabinets. So let's just pause and reflect for a moment. Where would we be without the contributions of these people? Oh, wow, that, that makes me very afraid. I, I, I think I need a hug. So let's just remember this show the next time you hear somebody telling a drummer joke. And if you're like me and you do play the drums, stand tall, stand proud. Our kind has, has done good. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 